Okay, folks, let's get started. So tonight I want to talk to you about something really simple. With these skills, it's easy, very simple, to fall into the trap of overcomplicating things. One of the biggest mistakes I see people make when they first start the stuff is to try and do everything all at once, and that's such a cliche, and I'm sure you've heard of that before, and you think, oh, I'd never fall into that trap, and I did. Everyone, most people do. The trick is, the trick is to focus on the little things that matter and do them in the right order. And this stuff might sound really fundamental, and I'm not trying to talk down to anyone, but this is just a problem that I see a lot with people trying to learn all this stuff all at once, and they go, well, how can I become a master erotic hypnosis expert? And I think, well, you know, read this book, do these things, follow this process, and, you know, and then, ta-da! But I want to do something simpler. I thought to myself, and I've been thinking to myself for a really long time, what are the three things that I can reduce these three core skill sets to? Like erotic hypnosis, there's so many people out there that teach skills on it, and there's different techniques, and the whole nine yards, there's just tens of hours of video, but what's like the one thing that you should do regularly? And I tried to reduce each of these skill sets down to the single core irreducible center of it. What is the one tool or exercise that you do to capture the entirety of, of that discipline? Something simple that you can rehearse every day or practice multiple times a week. So without any more fucking waffling on, here's the answer. For erotic hypnosis, it's the HLSS cards from Igor Letachowski, Letachowski, whatever the fuck his last name is. I can't pronounce it. I've never heard it pronounced out loud. Uh, and the videos that come along with that. For the operant conditioning stuff, it's The Training Game by Karen Pryor. And for general sexual skills, consent and communication, and by consent I don't mean the wanky version that most people would like to pour you, bore you to tears with, but the, the version that actually works is the three-minute game by Betty Martin, made popular by Betty Martin, although she acknowledges that it was invented by someone else. Those three skills, those three drills, those three techniques capture and encapsulate all of their respective disciplines. So, to recap, The Training Game by Karen Pryor, The HLSS Cards by Igor Ledovsky, and The uh, Three-Minute Game by Betty Martin. So, I'll briefly run through exactly how each of them actually works to capture the main aspects of their discipline. But honestly, you already have all the information from this that you need to know to do all this stuff. Um, this is just extra optional explanation stuff, but I will put a folder in my resources folder where I've collected all of these various um, tools. So I'll grab the videos from YouTube or wherever they've posted up, and I'll post a link to where you can find Eagle's cards and so on and so forth. But these are the three core things. Now, what I've started doing over the last several months is basically picking one of these things every day and making a point of practicing it with somebody every day. So every single day for the last couple of months, with a couple of breaks, obviously, um, I've been doing short little 
HLSS sessions with people or doing the training game in person or playing the three-minute game very much in person. And it's been working out fantastically to sharpen up those basic skills. Everything else can be layered on top of this, but it's about, it's about shaking off the rust and keeping things fresh every day. So let's talk about erotic hypnosis. The HLSS cards are brilliant. There are many alternatives to them. There are very much more expensive alternatives to them, but these are the best, mostly because they're cheap. They are designed as a hook to get you into Igor's stuff, and for that, they work very well. But obviously, there's no explanation, there's no uh, expectation that you will have to buy other material of his to make these work. They're, they just they work. The videos are really good quality. Basically, what you do is you buy a deck of cards with hypnotic phrases and language patterns printed on them, and then Igor leads you through a very clear, structured set of exercises that start extremely simple and get very sophisticated to improve your fluidity with hypnotic language. That's just the floor creaking. Uh, they're brilliant. And I have had some of the best sex of my life right after having sessions of that with people. Because, of course, you can do it you know, out loud by yourself in an empty room or you can practice with somebody in person. But you know, depending on what theme you load in, they can get really fun really quick. Uh, yeah, some great memories there. And I hope that you use them to make great memories of your own. That's the whole point of all this crap, right? Like, I'm not just talking to myself here. Uh, yeah, so basically you watch the videos and you practice the skills and you can do them as a gentle vanilla thing. They don't have to be sexual or kinky or you can keep the theme to relaxation or comfort or whatever it is you like. Uh, but the point is that you use them and practice with them very, very often. For a while there, for about the first month, I was doing two sessions a day. I would have a group of people that I would talk to and I would call them up first thing in the morning when I woke up. Uh, or last thing at night, both both first thing in the morning and last thing in the evening. And I would do two sessions of that a day for about, I don't know, a couple of weeks, about a month, I think, until I got really bored of doing that, but also really good at it. And then I just started you know, practicing with them every couple of days. But that's the trick. Every couple of days, practice with one of these things. Keeps you sharp. So that's the HLSS cards that handle the erotic hypnosis side of things. Now, that'll, that'll give you the basic hypnosis skills, things like pacing, timing, tonality, energy, fluidity, movement, creativity, imagination, spontaneity. All of those things will come from the correct application of the drills in those videos. So moving on to operant conditioning. Now, this is a tricky one because... I actually advocate now not learning erotic hypnosis first. I'm in the process of putting together a massive curriculum for how to go from where I was 10 years ago, 10 plus years ago now, to where I am now in <laughs> uh, an embarrassingly shorter length of time, given all the mistakes I've made and all the roadblocks I've hit along the way. But basically, I don't advocate that you learn erotic hypnosis up front. There's lots of different reasons for that, but the main one is that it's is a complex and active skill set. And I think starting simpler is better. There's a lot you can get out of operant conditioning that doesn't require learning complex language patterns. Um, operant conditioning is a hugely applicable skill set as well. 
you can get a lot of the value of erotic hypnosis out of reading scripts, reading the right scripts, scripts that I haven't written yet. They're still in draft form, but one of the projects that I'm working on is a book of scripts specifically for erotic hypnosis and the conditioning of your partner. Uh, to necessity, so you don't have to spend you know six months learning erotic hypnosis. You can read the scripts. A lot of people have criticisms of scripts. I think most of the criticisms of scripts are complete crap. There is literally no better tool from taking someone to from know nothing to having a reasonably good idea of what to do next, extremely quickly with with great confidence. Uh, obviously, there are limitations to scripts, but. Uh, those limitations are not as profound as many people would like them to be. So scripts work. They work very well for most people. Uh, and they work extremely well for people that are sort of starting out to get a handle on how everything flows together. I mean, you don't need to know how everything works all at the start before you do any of it. Read a script, make a recording practice. Read a script, make a recording practice. Go, oh, that's interesting. Why is that happening? Then find out. But the key emphasis is do stuff that you know is safe first. So that's one of the side projects that I'm working on. One of many, many side projects that I'm working on. But the training game is a couple of YouTube videos that I'll put into the resources folder. You'll need a clicker. Although, honestly, you don't need a clicker. Because if you can make one of these little mouth noises like that, you can use that as a marker signal. You can use a word as a marker signal. But a lot of people have a really strong erotic association with the idea of being trained like an animal is. They fucking love that. I don't think I've met anyone so far that found it denigrating or humiliating or degrading in anything but a positive way. I'm thinking of one girl in particular that just that responded so well to the idea of being trained precisely the same way that an animal would be. Yeah. So the training game is how you practice the operant conditioning stuff. Everything. So from from building behavior chains to timing to um, nonverbal cues to using the tag-teach framework. All of that stuff is kind of encapsulated in the training game. Uh, that's, the, that's the drill I would go back to, and that's probably the first thing I would probably teach somebody that wanted to learn this stuff is go and play. Go and play the training game. Pick something fun. Here's how I've done it in the past. Uh, basically, you're in a hotel room. You chat about it with a partner. You have a clicker. You decide on what you want them to do, but you don't tell them. You make it simple, not too complicated. And then you practice getting them from the door of the hotel room to do the behavior that you want them to do. A really simple one is training them to turn on a light switch. Right? Something they already know how to do, but it's the communication without saying it. You'll notice the first couple of times that you play it that your skill set will improve rapidly. You might get stuck a little bit if you do just laugh it off, okay? Uh, if it's taking your partner more than about 30 seconds or so to get to like a new behavior, if they look like they're getting frustrated or overwhelmed, you know, switch it up and I'm trying to think of how I handled that in the past. One of the problems is that they aren't quite sure what exactly it is that you want them to do. So the operant conditioning tool set helps you to communicate that without getting caught on the words. The other thing about operant conditioning that's a lot more uh, 
I would never say that both of them are, one of them is more powerful than the other. Like erotic hypnosis is probably not more powerful than operant conditioning and operant conditioning is not more powerful than erotic hypnosis. It's like comparing apples to oranges. They're both very, very good for what you use them for. Uh, but one of the downsides of erotic hypnosis is it's easy to go into a session with an undefined goal. Whereas if you start by learning operant conditioning first, it drills into you every single time. What do I want? How am I going to get them there? What are the steps? And because there's no verbal component, and this is something that I've discovered as well when I'm, I'm talking to people about articulating the things that really turn them on. There's like a surface level of things they're comfortable admitting to a stranger. And then there's deeper things that they're less comfortable admitting to a stranger. But one of the things is that having to say it out loud is somewhat of an impediment for some people. They are much more capable of writing things down, at least to begin with, until you establish a lot of trust than they are about saying things out loud. Plus, there's a lot of things that people will do when they're really, really turned on that they'll enjoy, but they won't be able to kind of acknowledge unless they're in a really, really horny state of mind. I mean, I'm kind of paraphrasing paraphrasing a villain from Firefly here, but, you know, after three days of constant edging, that's when you really know somebody. It's the things they ask you for. It's the things they beg you for. It's the things they're willing to do that come naturally to them in that state of mind. So yes, uh, training game. That's the exercise I would advocate for mastering operant conditioning. And that will give you a very, very firm grasp of the basics of all the different aspects of it. And most importantly, how to do it. Because all of this stuff is meant to be done. It's not meant to be an academic exercise in esoteric knowledge it's not meant to be something that you can brag about to your friends oh i took a course what did you do with it that's what matters is what you do what matters is what you do with it are you using it to make people's lives better are you using it to make your life better if you are email me there's nothing i enjoy more than reading emails from people that have listened to a podcast and taught their girlfriend six new ways to orgasm <sighs> or from young submissive couples that are just starting out and looking how confusing all this stuff is and, and how you're expected to be a fucking tantra expert in order to get a handle on any of this stuff. And it's like, no, no, just do these things. It is simple. It doesn't have to be complicated. The point is not the training. The point is not the, the leather. The point is not the whips. The point is not the tools. The point is the relationship. The point is you and her. And the things that you do with each other and the things that you do for yourselves, you know, it's, it's so easy to get caught up in the, in the pep and the drama and the, and the tools and the implements and the stagecraft of it all. But it's not about that. It's about you and her and all of these tools I mean, I'm not saying I haven't made that mistake in the past. I've definitely, I've definitely made that mistake. It's easy to come into it and get caught up in the razzle-dazzle. But, you know, I realized it wasn't what I was doing with people that was having that much of an impact on my life. It was, it was the people that I met. It was the people that I met and what I did with them. Not, you know, what I was doing 
people, I think, in kink, it's a bit of a tangent, but, uh, you know, there are really no tangents in this stuff. It's my whole life. I spend every waking moment thinking about this stuff and building new tools for people and myself. And I think people in kink have it backwards, generally speaking. It's the perception that I have uh, or had was... Um, that it was 70% about the thing they do and 30% about the actual person they do it with, which is why you get people, you know, running around a party going, spank me, spank me. And it's like, we don't know anything about me. They don't want you to spank them. They just want a spanking, as an example. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I'm very happy to engage in that kind of play. And I've enjoyed it in the past. Not a criticism, but for me, it's like, who are you? The the things that I do with somebody are 70 to 80% about that person and 20% about the actual things that I do with them. And I think that's a much healthier way of looking at a relationship long term. It's so difficult to make these podcast episodes because I can always hear in the back of my head some whiny cunt going, oh, well, you know, I think differently. I'm like, that's great, honey. Honestly, fantastic. You do you. But I hate self-censorship. I think it's one of the worst things a person can do to themselves. I really do. I think it's right up there with self-mutilation, you know, overeating and generalized self-harm. I think in the privacy of your own mind, you must be free to think and feel whatever it is that you think and feel without censorship, without judgment. Of course, you don't have to act on those impulses, but God, the constraints that people place on themselves through fear of judgment from others is just... It's so oppressive. It's it's more oppressive than any totalitarian government could be. It's thought control. I mean, you know, I'm really into thought control, but in an erotic context, you know, I don't I don't want people not doing things or not saying things or not enjoying things because they're worried about how other people might perceive them. You know, that's not what I want at all. So, erotic hypnosis, HLSS cards and videos, operant conditioning the training game and so finally we come to the three minute game now Karen Pryor I was reading recently didn't actually invent this coming from another guy and she kind of refined it and made it popular but I'm still going to give her credit for it because you know she made it popular and accessible but the three minute game if you haven't heard about it google Betty Martin three minute game there'll be a folder in the resources folder with all the videos and the pdf printouts uh, it's basically a series of questions that you ask somebody that you want to play with so the, the basic variation is, uh, how can I touch you for three minutes for your pleasure? How can I touch you for three minutes for my pleasure? And then you swap roles, right? And the idea of this is, and the way I've been using it, is to build competency in uh, interpersonal communication in a sexual context, which, which sounds really wanky, but basically it makes you better at sex. Now, the feminists out there will say consent is the most important thing in the world and you have to communicate all the time and you have to be talking, 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 talking. And that's fucking dumb as fuck. Never listen to feminists. Whenever they're right, it's by accident. The purpose of, the, of what I use it for is to help people create emotional and physical fluency. So... It was really eye-opening for me to see how she breaks sex down into a simplified form. So it's not like two people are doing things simultaneously. I'm not like, I'm not eating you out while you massage my feet. It's an interesting image, but yeah. 
It's you break it down in, into one person doing one thing at a time to somebody or for somebody. Um, but it breaks sex down into four roles that are complementary. Uh, from memory, taking, submitting, giving, and receiving. Now, what I found really interesting, especially when it comes to submissives and dominance, and I'm pretty sure I've talked about this before, but I may not have put it on tape yet. There's a lot of stuff that I've talked about that I haven't actually recorded. Uh, is I've noticed that it's a bit like the VAK metaphor, uh, the model for you know visual, auditory, digital, kinesthetic. Most people are hyperdeveloped in one and then underdeveloped in another and then have zero development in a third. You know, someone can be really, really strong visually, but, you know, um, secondarily kinesthetic and then, you know, no auditory digital. It's, it's like there's a, you know, it's like water finding its own pathway. People get really good at something and then they just keep doing that and they get better and better at that. But other areas atrophy a little through underuse. And I've noticed that with submissives and dominance, there's a very pronounced delineation here. You know, dominants are typically quite good at taking and receiving, right? And submissives are usually quite good at surrendering and giving. However, in order to have, in order to have balance in the force, I believe it's very important for both partners to develop all of their skills it's very important for, actually, hang on a minute. No, that's the other way around. It's what I've very much seen is that dominants are quite good at taking and giving. And submissives are quite good at submitting and receiving. Which, yeah, that, that pans out better. Because what I've seen is that a lot of dominants have a huge problem receiving. And they need to practice that. Uh, and I've noticed that a lot of submissives have a huge problem giving, and they really need to work on that. Uh, that taps into sort of broader observations I've made around structural deficiencies in the average DS relationship. I, I've noticed that the average DS relationship involves the guy basically being a service provider, um, and any time that he has any objection to that, he's essentially summarily replaced or told that he can be replaced quite easily. Uh, women tend to be much more aggressive. Female, quote-unquote, dominance uh, tend to be much more aggressive at making sure that everyone knows they're not service providers. And, you know, and then they advertise on their profile that they're primarily a service top. So, yeah. Uh, sure. But, Having the flow, the circle back and forth, around and round, it's a bit like Avatar The Last Airbender, right? Like, you know, Ang, Ang, sorry, God, not the movie pronunciation, Ang. Ang is, you know, a being of air, which means that the most difficult element for him to master was Earth. It's complementary, diametric opposite. You know, water was easy, fire was relatively easy, but, you know, the opposite element was difficult. So dominance are like that, you know, there's, you're very, very good at taking and you're very, very good at giving, but you might not be very good at receiving and receiving is fun. I mean, honestly, if I'm breaking down all the mistakes I've made, I should publish a book on that. All the mistakes I've made in my relationships in the past, one of the biggest problems that I had was I wouldn't ever let anybody give anything to me. 
I always had to be the one giving things to people. And there's lots of different reasons for that. But, you know, it's not, it's not sound. It's not valid. It's, you're not, this sounds really fundamental, but as a dominant, you have to provide your submissive with opportunities to actually make you happy. It sounds really fundamental, and it is, because so many dominants don't do it. They don't give their opportunities. They don't provide opportunities to their submissive to actually make them happy. You know, when you ask your submissive, you know, they should be able to reply with a list of a couple of things off the top of their head in that moment that would make you happy, regardless of whether they're doing them or not. They should always have a pathway into making you happy, a realistic pathway. They should know and be able to do, even if they aren't doing them, a couple of things that they know will put a smile on your face because that is so important to a submissive. Making you happy is the most important thing to them. And so it's actually cruel if you don't teach them the right way to make you happy. And if you don't make that realistic and reasonable and approachable, if you... If you say, well, the only way you can make me happy is by spending $1,000 on me, that's not realistic. It's not something they can do, you know, frequently. Uh, you have to make it simple for them to put a smile on your face, you know. Tell them, tell them the things that you like. Make it clear. Honestly, I'm a big fan of making lists in relationships. Write up a list of all the things that put a smile on your face. When you wear a short skirt, I like that. When you call me daddy, I like that. When you ask me for a bedtime story, I like that. When you, um, you know, when you sext me nudes, I like that. When you tell me that you've had a good day at work, I like that. When you tell me that you've done something that you're proud of, I like that. Why wouldn't I want to see someone that I care about excel and succeed and be happy, you know? I think a lot of dominance also have this perception that they have to be stone-walled, cold-faced motherfuckers, you know? No emotion. That showing any kind of emotion is weakness. And I, God, I, I wish I could just... I wish I could snap my fingers and just change that. The submissive that is in service to you wants to see you happy. They want to see you succeed. They want to see you thrive. Well, the good ones do. Even if they can't follow you where you're going, even if they know that if you achieve this lofty goal, they can't follow you where you're going. They'll still want you to succeed, even if the cost they pay for it is the relationship. They'll still try their absolute best to support you. The good ones will. I've had the great pleasure and good fortune of of having many of those in my life. They want what is best for you. They don't always know what that is, but they just, they want the best for you. And, you know, it's something that's talked about a lot for dominance is, you know, you should always want what's best for your submissive. And it's like, well, who decides what that is? Who decides how she's going to get that? Who decides who's responsible for giving her that? And the answer is usually the dominant, the dominant, and the dominant. But, you know, you can want what's best for somebody. You can want the best for someone without being responsible for giving it to them. But at the same time, as a dominant, you need to make sure that your submissive has simple little things they can do to put a smile on your face because your approval matters so much to them. When you're angry with them, it just 
cuts them so deeply. Yeah. So those are the three of the core tools that I advocate. People are always asking me, how do I get started in this stuff? What do I do first? And it's like, well, honestly, overall, I came into this stuff very biased. I, uh, I learned erotic hypnosis first. I've been good at it since I was about 10. Uh, I've only gotten better with time and I'm significantly older now. But if I were starting off from scratch, from, you know, from the first floor, I would not advocate learning erotic hypnosis to start with. I would instead immediately begin to work on myself using operant conditioning and a limited subset of erotic hypnosis to recondition myself. The biggest thing I would advocate people solve in their relationships is being a nice guy. If you haven't read Dr. Robert Glover's book, No More Mr. Nice Guy, and you have a penis, you really have to read it. Uh, even if you think that you aren't presenting those symptoms, nice guyism is the most prevalent and some would argue the most destructive mental illness active in our society today. It is more widespread than depression and anxiety, and it is arguably just as dangerous, if not more so. You need to, as a dominant, make getting rid of your nice guyish behaviors an extremely high priority. I say this from personal experience because the value judgments that occur in a DS relationship are essentially inverted from a normal relationship, right? Like in a normal relationship, it's me first, then the rest of my life, then somewhere down the list is the relationship. And it's the same for her. And that's normal and healthy, right? In a DS relationship, or at least most of them, it's, you know, my life first and her life is all about me. And it's like, well, if I don't know what makes me happy, I can't tell her. And then she can't do the little things that can make me happy. And she will just run around feeling like there's no purpose in her life and she can never get it right. And that's, oh, God, it's such a, it's such a bad thing for submissives to feel. It's just painful. Painful watching that, painful being in that relationship. You have to accept that she wants to make you happy, that she wants to do little things to make you happy. So give her pathways that she's confident that she can do these things consistently, which means you might have to train her a little bit, but honestly, most simple things, it should just be a case of telling her to do this and then rewarding her when she does it, all right? But that's where the operant conditioning stuff comes in, the training game. Take the verbal aspect out of it, make it super, super simple. Yeah. Three-minute game is also excellent for learning about balance in your relationship and give and take and... I guess what else do we need to put in here? I guess I should probably do a podcast episode on core beliefs as a dominant because that's just something that keeps coming up in conversation all the time. You know, the things you believe are, they control the reality you're allowed to experience. And that reality can be really fun or really shit, but it can be the same where the only thing that's different is how you feel about things. Like I, in the past, I've had people serve me and... I've thought, oh, God, this is such an imposition. It's such a burden. It's such a difficult thing to bear. It's this constant drain on my attention and my energy. In it. But it wasn't. It was, you know, I was doing something less than optimally. Not wrong, not bad, but 
well, everyone's made mistakes, I suppose. I wish that more presenters would teach the sidebar, but I wish that more presenters would teach all the things they did wrong. Actually, that's a good idea for a podcast episode. Hmm. All the things they did wrong and how they handled it. I I love going to, you know, two-day seminars on slave training. And, you know, the guy presents this highly optimized, extremely fragile-looking framework that, you know, it works, but there's nothing in there about what happens if this goes wrong? What happens if that goes wrong? What happens if this happens? Uh, so I've, I've tried to bake in a lot of, okay, this stuff works, but you know, in the event that this happens, here's what you should do with it. Sort of content into my work because mistakes happen. I guess that's probably a good note to finish things on for this episode is uh, everyone makes mistakes. The toxicity of the kink quote-unquote community it can't really be called a community for a variety of different reasons which i'll elucidate on more in a future episode but the kink community doesn't really exist uh it's very toxic for a lot of different reasons and one of the reasons that it's very toxic is that there are no there is no forgiveness the stakes are so high and the pressure is so intense and everyone is walking around pretending that they've got all the answers. And even, even the people that are walking around going, I don't have all the answers, are still often pretending like they have all the answers. They're terrified of, of ever making a public mistake because the consequences for saying the wrong thing to the wrong person one time is you get completely evicted from the entire social group. You know, everyone sees this. Everyone is chilled by this. Imagination creativity, spontaneity, they stagnate, they ossify. They crystallize in their fixed form and there's no growth. And that's why the kink community is non-existent. It doesn't exist as a community because it doesn't fulfill any of the, the core requirements of a community. At least not where I'm from and at least not in my personal experience of it. Maybe it's different in America or Europe, but I can only speak to the things that I've experienced personally. But I do see, and I know other people see, that there are very, very high consequences for making any kind of mistake or being perceived to have made any kind of mistake. And the amount of pressure on young male dominance is just phenomenal. It's no wonder these guys are coming in happy and excited and enthusiastic and then disappearing a couple of years later because no one will teach them anything. Everyone is constantly judging them without offering them a hand in support. And yeah, pretty much everyone treats them like they're the lowest rung on the totem pole. And I think that's fucking disgusting. Uh, there's lots of things that I think are wrong with the kink, quote unquote, community. Just imagine that I'm using air quotes every time I say kink community. It's easier than repeating it. But, you know, apart from whinging about it, for five minutes, I actually have put a tremendous amount of effort into fixing it. I have been drawing up plans and processes and preventative measures to create a better world. So that's something I'm working on on the side as well. Lots of projects. But yes, those are the three core tools. Uh, they Each one of them encompasses every core element of each of those disciplines. So the HLSS cards cover all of the erotic hypnosis stuff, all of the hypnosis stuff. Of course, then you can just layer in the erotic themes. The training game covers all of the operant conditioning stuff, timing, pacing, building behavior chains, you know, seeing it as fun, 
dealing with this. I mean, I, I hate to hate to be that guy at the end that's like pep talk time, but one of the big problems with kink is that it's not fun anymore. There is no mistake. There's no allowances for mistakes. Everything has to be perfectly right every single time. And if it's perfectly right every single time, the only prize that you win is the opportunity to do it again tomorrow and get it perfectly right the next time as well. And if you don't, if you make a single mistake or if you say the wrong thing or you don't use someone's proper fucking pronouns, you know, or someone just makes shit up about you, you get banned from your entire social group. You get banned from something that you've been contributing to actively, that you've been the bleeding heart of for years, based on rumors and hearsay. And it's not just happened to several people that I know personally. It's probably happened to dozens and hundreds of people that I've seen online and in person. They get unpersoned. It's very, it's very Soviet Russia, you know, height of Stalin's reign. Persona non grata. It's it's very unsettling to watch, and people watch it and they they say nothing because they're terrified that they'll be next. But I know for a fact that there are thousands of people out there that are listening to this because I've got the analytics switched on, and I know for a fact that there are dozens and dozens of people that have sent me emails personally thanking me for doing this, which is why I do it. I do it because it makes a positive impact on people's lives. I don't want you to have to go through the amount of wasted time and pure human suffering that I did to learn all of this stuff. If I can sit down and summarize five years of study in operant conditioning into a paragraph and a half of what you should do in the right order, that's, that's what I'm going to do. So that covers the three core skill sets. Go, play, have fun. Not in like a, oh, you know, have fun, kids. In like a genuinely have fun with this. The point of this is to have fun and connect. Have fun and connect. It's not to look cool in front of your friends. It's not to impress some girl. Girls aren't really that special. There's plenty of them out there. You should not be living your life as though the approval of a single woman matters more to you than the air you breathe. It should not be more important to you than your opinion of yourself. Go play, have fun, learn, teach, teach this stuff to other people. Point them to the podcast if you want. If you'd rather just take the skills that you learn from an episode and teach them, teach them. I've got another project I'm working on that's a, a framework for people that want to teach their own classes because I am fucking sick of gatekeeping. But it's there are there are so many people out there that I know that I've I've spoken to personally, I can think of at least three in the last month that should be teaching a class but are not teaching a class because they think, oh, they're not the guru. You know, they're not they haven't been around for ten years. What could they possibly know? You know, other people in this area have written books and published it and oh I just worship at the altar of how cool they are. And it's like, no, no, I'm telling you, I've read their books. They're nothing special. You have something unique to contribute, your angle. There are so many people out there that, that don't teach, that don't share what they know, and there's a couple of reasons why they don't. So I'm working on something to try and get those people over the line and get more people teaching more classes, not longer classes or huge weekend workshops, but like, you know something. There are lots of people out there. I've met them. 
I think I've had this conversation with probably close to a hundred of them in person. It's like, you know, that's really cool. Publish that. Oh, I could never. It's like, yes, you could. You really could. Why couldn't you? Oh, you know, I'm not experienced enough. Yes, you are. I don't have the time. It takes 20 minutes. You know, it's teach, teach. Share this stuff with the people that you love. I was doing something the other night with a girl that I met, you know, and I, back at my hotel room, we're just getting to know each other better and all that jazz. And I just started teaching her things. It's like, that's just how I do things. You don't have to like pick up one night stands, take them back to your hotel room and then teach them how to come their brains out. But, you know, why not? Give, give things to people that make you feel good when you give them. But also remember that there's a concept that I'm coming up with, sort of completely unrelated, and I'll wrap this up in a second, but I'm thinking of it as the iron law of relationships. And it's a simple behavioral adjustment to essentially prevent nice guyism. I've been looking at like high leverage single ideas. And the iron law of relationships is this. For every kind thing that you do for someone that you're in a relationship with, do the same kind thing to yourself twice. Like, I know dominants that have organized three-day spa weekends for their submissives. Send them away, massage by the pool, daily taskings, lots of time and attention. They would never do that themselves. They would never go away for a couple of days. They would make lots of excuses as to why they couldn't do that. That work's too busy, they don't have the time. If you've got the time to do it for somebody else, you've got the time to do it for you, and you should. So, just an idea. The iron law of relationships. But it's based on Brad P's golden rule, which was designed to solve a lot of the problems in pickup that I see in the kink and sort of relationships community. It's the golden rule from Brad P is for every hour of focused study that you do in an area, you must practice in person and implement those ideas for two hours. So one hour of study, two hours of implementation, no exceptions. It's genius. It solves off the top of my head like 10 straight problems right out the bat. You know, guys get caught up and they read and they read and they read and they don't do any of this stuff. And everyone's like so critical of those people who don't do anything, but they never examine why people don't do things. And it's just so frustrating. It's like, why are they not doing this? Because there's no one for them to do it with. Or no one will help them. Or they're terrified of looking like an idiot in front of all these strange people that are constantly judging them. And it's like, stop whining and help. You know, start groups, start communities, start practice groups, start discussion groups. Stop fucking bitching to all of your edgy, edgelord friends about how there are no real doms out there or all these fucking upstarts and they can't handle the, you know. It's like stop running around looking down your fucking nose at people and help build something useful. Don't just whinge. You know, it's... It's, as you can probably tell, it's quite frustrating to me to see that sort of response from the older crowd in kink, you know, and to see so many promising young people, promising young people, God, what am I old now, turned away from these things, turned away by the repugnancy and the toxicity of the kink, quote unquote, community, 
I'm not saying that you have to roll out the red carpet for every random stranger, but, you know, again, for every hour that you spend bitching about how you can't find any good people to play with, do something for two hours to find good people to play with or to help make them. You know, and that doesn't involve teaching another basics 101 on consent. Everyone's been to them. They're boring as fuck. Most of the stuff in them is okay-ish, but honestly, there's a lot of room for improvement. That's another podcast episode. I've, I've been uh, working on a consent framework that's vastly simplified, and I'll be honest with you, pretty much totally better in every way. But uh, I can just hear the re in the background from all the feminists that listen to my podcast. Hi, girls. Complaining about that. But yeah, consent as it's done now sucks. Massively overcomplicated. Designed to be labyrinthine. Dangerous. Difficult to do correctly. Correctly. Air quotes. And singularly unforgiving of anyone who initiates anything and doesn't get it perfectly right the first time. So, yeah, there's lots of things to fix there. But uh, that's a good place to wrap it up. So this this podcast episode was basically done because people keep saying, well, how do I get a handle on this skill set? I've, I've done erotic hypnosis, so I've never done operant conditioning. How do I learn? And I'm like, well, this is the one thing you should do. This is the Mandelbro, Mandelbrot fractal. Again, another word I've never heard pronounced out loud. Fractal of, of, each, of each area. So the training game encompasses everything that operant conditioning needs you to know in order to do it really well. And it's a strong, simple, and that's the key part is it's simple. It's no per, there's no point, no purpose other than making money out of this stuff to try to teach someone a three-day consent workshop. Like it's just, it's not that hard, folks. It's really not. If you want to look up consent in a nutshell, <sighs> fuck, uh, play the three-minute game with somebody and use Anton Fullman's seven questions from his book, The Heart of Dominance. Seriously, that's it. Just buy Anton Fullman's book, The Heart of Dominance. Google within it the seven questions and use those. Write them on a piece of paper. This will all be in, this will all be in the consent thing that I'm working on, but this is the this is the gist of it now. And, you know, those seven questions. Ta-da! You know, and again, it's... The big problem with consent is that it's mutable. There's lots of different problems with consent, both with how, what it is and how it's taught. But one of the problems is it's mutable. It's, it changes. It changes over time. I've had people start off in a session with erotic hypnosis. It's very variable with erotic hypnosis because you can change how someone feels about you, feels about things, feels about themselves very quickly. I've had people start off awkward and standoffish. And half an hour later, they're professing their undying love to me. That's not unusual. I'm not bragging. It's, it's, it goes to demonstrate the mutability of the human mind. With great power comes great responsibility, folks. And that's an easy way to remember consent as well. It's the Spider-Man idea of it. You know, great power, great responsibility. Yes, mutability. Human desire. Well, that's all for now. Enjoy. Use these three things. Learn, play, have fun. Check the website for more content. You know, blah, blah, blah. Mindkink.net, 